Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the April 2021 issue of NCP is Nutrition Consideration for Specific Medical Conditions. Joining me today are authors of two clinical controversy papers presenting opposing views of indirect calorimetry. Dr. Paul Wishmeyer will be defending his position in the point-counterpoint controversy. Indirect calorimetry is essential for optimal nutrition therapy in the ICU. Dr. Wishmeyer is a professor of anesthesiology and surgery at Duke University School of Medicine. He is also director of the Nutrition and TPN team with a focus on intensive care and nutrition. Dr. Stephen McClave is going to be defending his position. Indirect calorimetry is not necessary for optimal nutrition and critical illness. Dr. McClave is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. So thank you, Dr. Wishmeyer and Dr. McClave for joining me today. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our speakers if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. So Dr. Wishmeyer? Yes, uh, I'd like to disclose that I have investigator-initiated research um, on the new role of indirect calorimetry in COVID-19 in particular from both Baxter and from COSMED. Dr. McClave? I have a disclosure. Um, I'm on an advisory board for Baxter, who's involved with the uh, rollout of the new uh, indirect calorimeter from Europe, the QNRG. Thank you. So now I think it's time to get our boxing gloves out here, and let's get some controversy going. So as we start, I'm going to ask both of you to give us two or three points to sway our listeners to your position about using indirect calorimetry, especially in the ICU. So Dr. Wishmeyer, why don't you start? Thanks, Jeanette, and thanks, thanks for having us. This is an exciting topic, um, especially now. So I, I think the, the first point I'd like to make is that, you know, of, of, all, of all the trials that have been done looking at, say, full nutrition versus hypochloric nutrition, the trials that are consistently showing that giving full nutrition is beneficial to patients are trials that are done using metabolic carts. If you really want to get the benefit of targeted feeding of nutrition, you need to be using a metabolic cart. And these include the TKCOS trial, TKCOS 1, that showed reduced mortality from targeted feeding with a metabolic cart, the TKCOS 2, that showed decreased infection. Again, Pierre Singer's group showed this using targeted feeding with indirect calorimetry. The Heidegger trial with Metaburger that showed reduced infections from parental nutrition supplementation, but again, targeted with a metabolic cart target. And then the Zussman paper that showed that feeding 70% clearly led to the optimal survival outcomes. But if you fed more than 100% or less than 70%, your mortality went up. And so I think that is real hard evidence that we need to be targeting our feeds. And then I think the other the other key point is actually the point that my opponent Steve has made himself and taught me in in my young years many many years ago and you know when I was very young and Steve was a little bit younger that showed that again a third of the time we underfeed when we use equations a third of the time we overfeed and a third of the time we're right so it's basically like a crapshoot in Vegas if you're going to be right the predictive equations really are random number generators that aren't providing accurate information to us as we feed our patients you know. And I think the key in critical care is, this is the last key point, I think, is that we're an objective specialty. We like numbers. We like accuracy. We would never give vasopressors without measuring a blood pressure, you know. Um, And so I think 
it's come time that we in nutrition need to bring ourselves equal with the other disciplines within critical care, and that we should never be delivering nutrition in a sick patient without measuring a target with an indirect calorimeter, um, because that's when we're going to finally get the respect and the focus that nutrition deserves in the ICU. And I think we are finally at a place where we can do that. So, Steve, let's hear your side of the topic. And what two or three points do you want to share that would say that we don't need to use indirect calorimetry? The irony of my statements are that I'm a huge metabolic cart fan, as Paul already has alluded to. And in the past, we were very aggressive with feeding, and we were driven by the caloric deficit rule, which meant we had to know what the goal was and meet that goal to get the best outcome. But now things are different. We realize that we need to have a slow ramp up in the first week of critical illness, and we only want to shoot to get to about 70 to 80% of caloric requirements that first week. So right off the bat, the idea that we have to have a precise number with this looseness of our advancement it raises some question. My first point is that in this situation that we practice now, 25 calories per kilogram per day is a pretty darn good number to approximate requirements. And it's at least as good as all the other published equations. And in two trials, the Tychekos that Paul mentioned and the EAT ICU trial, 25 calories per kilogram per day was 100.6% of the number measured by indirect calorimeter. The worst was in the EICU where the controls uh, were 106%. That 25 calories per kilogram per day was 106% of what was measured by the indirect calorimeter. So it's darn close. My second point would be, do we need a precise measurement? And even if we meet the precise measurement, does that change outcome? And I would say no. The two Tykeco studies, the Swiss Heidinger study and the EAT ICU trial were all trials where they measured energy expenditure and met it in one group versus controls that used a weight-based equation. Paul referred to some outcome parameters that were positive in those trials, and I would disagree that those were positive trials. Tykeco's one, mortality was better, but everything else was worse. And when they repeated Tykeco's as an international multi-center trial, all those differences disappeared. And the Heidinger Swiss study reported better nosocomial infections with uh, tight control supplemental PN, but it was other infections, not major infections, other being skin and nose. And I'm not sure what that is. And then my last point would be, say we don't just have any number for goal, is it important to meet that goal to optimize uh, care? And the answer I say was no, based on the target trial. The target trial used different concentrations. They ended up at 62% of 25 calories per kilogram per day and 92% in the two groups. So they were kind of close to a weight-based equation. Not, they did not measure energy expenditure and the outcome was the same. So I think you just have to be in the ballpark to get the job done. And the magic of our nutrition therapy is not related to numbers of calories or protein, but to some other magical thing. And that's immune modulation, barrier defense, microbiome, those things. So now that you've each heard each other's arguments, I kind of want you to kind of step into the shoes of your opponent and think about their two or three main points and then ask you which one of their points would you tend to agree with? So I'm going to switch at this time. And Steve, can you tell us what you agree with what Paul had to say? 
Assuming Paul's thinking was straight forward, um, <laughs> I would give. I thought you were going to nail me on the COVID nineteen stuff, Paul. That you have done, and you've done magic work there. This group, this disease process, is different than anything we've ever seen, and they're kind of borderline normal metabolic. Their first week, maybe a little under even. Next week, they're higher. Third week, they're even higher. It is a metabolic response we've never seen. Our equations wouldn't possibly work in the really sick COVID-19 patients. And you can't even tell where you are if you didn't do the metabolic cart. So I'm going to use Paul's work to defend his own work, his own comments. So, Paul, what about what Steve said do you think stands true in this discussion? I mean, I, I think his points is there's a, and this has been a plague in nutrition trials for years, is we could both look at the same trial and see different things. And the Ketocos one is a great example that were, it appeared to save lives to have targeted nutrition, but all the other things, uh, outcomes like infections and length of stay were longer. Now, if you're arguing the other side of that, and Darren Heinlein likes to do this too, you would say, well, you know, people that live longer, live longer and end up having more complications and longer length of stays because the people that died sooner died before they had those length of stays and they had those infections and all the other complications that go with living longer. But, but I agree, it's, it's been a challenge. And I think um, one of those challenges that, that I would come back on has been a severe limitation of metabolic cart research to date has been the challenges of using the metabolic cart itself, right? I think the existing metabolic carts we've had for many years have been very difficult to use. Um, I can tell you in talking to real experts in metabolism, like Mervyn Singer, he's tried to do research with them and says, they're just not accurate, Paul. I can't calibrate this cart. It's not reading numbers that fit real calibration numbers. So the accuracy has been questioned. People just can't use them. It takes forever to set them up. You have to have a respiratory therapist to use them. You know, dietitians can't drive these teams on their own too easily because they depend on the respiratory therapists and someone to calibrate them and, and take care of them. They have not been practical or pragmatic to use, which not only limits their use in research, but clearly has limited their use in clinical practice. And so I think even the research that, that we can debate, whether it shows positive results or not, I think has been challenged by the limitations of the existing metabolic cart technology to this point. And I would like to tease or put out there that I, I think it's better. And I think that the new generation metabolic cart that's been released, that was built as a collaboration between us as academic nutrition physicians um, with a group that Claude Richard, Metaburger, and, and I ended up joining as well and got to work with them with Elizabeth Diwali and others. We worked with Cosmed and Espen funding to build what we hope is a better metabolic cart. And, and so this, this cart we're talking about wasn't just some industry endeavor to make something better. It was an endeavor of academia and industry to work together to make a better device. And, I, and our hope is with better devices and more practical use of those devices, which Steve referred to in our Leap COVID study of what we're seeing, these dramatic hypermetabolic events late and hypo metabolism early, that's impossible to predict with an equation because um, none of our equations can predict that kind of hypermetabolism. I can tell you that um, with some new data we have. I think the future is bright and is this could totally change and the opportunities to do research and to change clinical practice are real. So I think what I'm hearing from both of you is there probably is a role for indirect calimetry, but tell me some situations in which you think it's probably where you'd really want to be able to use it or where it's imperative. Uh, Steve, I'm going to let you go first with that. Yeah, two comments. First of all, if you have the opportunity to get a metabolic cart in your career at your institution, jump on it. 
it, you learn so much about uh, disease process, the way the body utilizes food and the response of the, the body to uh, stressors. And it, it just makes you such a richer, more underlying understanding of what we're trying to do with nutrition therapy. I think the best use of indirect calorie entry is number one in the recovery phase, because we've gotten through the acute and the immediate post-acute phases. We've now ramped up hopefully to 100% of caloric goal in addition to 100% of protein goal. And now as they're recovering, we may wanna make up deficits and to safely overfeed to do that, uh, to meet their needs so they don't continue to lose weight or go into picks or something like that. That's when having a precise goal means more. If they are failing to gain weight, if they are continuing to have deteriorative nutritional status, the CART is very important. In complex patients, that includes the COVID-19 patients, patients with sarcopenia, large wounds, large burns. I think there, all the equations uh, may uh, fall short. I think when there are abrupt changes in clinical status, uh, when they come off the ventilator, if they go on the ventilator, that can be a 25% change in your energy expenditure up or down, depending on going on or going off. Uh, acute sepsis, uh, onset of organ failure, all these can change demands and the, uh, the CART would help. And then finally, uh, situations where there are factors that would just render the equations worthless, uh, amputation. Uh, they come in, they're six feet tall, and then one operation later, they're four feet tall, you know. Um, Anasarca, uh, extremes of BMI, the equations really fall off in accuracy at extremes of BMI, low and high. So this is where you're going to get your big bang for your buck on indirect counterimagery. Paul, what about you? What cases do you feel like you just couldn't live without the metabolic cart? You know, I think Steve made some good points, and I think our, our, our COVID-19 data really emphasized this. You know, our, our equations didn't do too badly in that first week, and I, I think Steve emphasize that as well. Even in, in COVID-19, we saw what really was almost a hypometabolic phase, which actually I would not have predicted given all the touting of the inflammation this disease has, but I'm still seeing it even more intubating patients late. You know, I used to think it was just because we were intubating people way earlier and we were seeing this. Now, even when we wait to intubate people, even still, I see some drop in that first week, not quite as much when we intubate them later, but you know, I, somewhere between 17 and 22 seems to be a pretty darn good number. And that's about what our equations predict in that first week if we feed to that. But Steve, you're right. In that second, third, fourth, and we have data now to seven weeks um, in the COVID-19 population and the hypermetabolism persists. 28, 30, 32 kcals, even higher, sometimes 40 kcals per kilo for weeks out into that um, sort of chronic critical illness phase. And, you know, we've already, we've got these two great research dietitians, Laura Nieder and Hillary Miller, who just cranked away on data for some of the presentations we're giving this week on comparing the IC data in COVID to the different equations. And none of the equations have any ability to predict that hypermetabolism, like Steve was saying. And so as you get later, they just can't perform. Penn State, of course, we found did the best as well as, as, as many of our studies have shown but they can't, there's no way for them to predict that because the patient's changing the equations aren't. And so in addition, I think Steve said the good ones, burn patients, you know, I was a burn attending for many, many years in Colorado and, and they were invaluable. I, I felt like they saved lives in that setting. It's impossible to predict those patients. The obese patient, the elderly patient, um, we, we see a lot of variability in the elderly patient. 
Um, heart failure patients, we're doing a lot of pre-cardiac transplant metabolic heart weekly data. We've developed a paraptive optimization team for the heart transplants. And I'm seeing incredible variation. I've got a patient who weighs 48 kilos and is frail with a resting metabolic rate of 1800. And then the next day I'll see a 65 kilo man who's been eating really poorly and looks like an anorexic patient with a resting energy expenditure of 1200 who weighs 20 kilos more than that RE of 1800 I saw in, the, in this really small other patient. So it, it, th these kinds of diseases I'd never studied before until the advent of these new devices. And I'm seeing things that I never would have thought I would have predicted or, or been able to predict. I, I would reiterate that if I could, Jeanette. Paul, the work you're doing there is, is just critical. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to redefine the need for indirect calorimetry. It's also going to redefine the use of uh, parental nutrition in the ICU because they are so hard to feed by the interval route and they're going so long in this high metabolic states that to try to do that uh, and not add supplemental PN to get the job done uh, is, is very difficult. So this work is very critical and I, I hope we get to write a paper together on it. Uh, we're supposed to. I uh, know. I agree. So great, great work and keep it up. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, no, we hope so too. So Paul, I want to come back and talking about indirect calorimeters. Can you kind of give an overview for what metabolic carts are out there and available to use right now in clinical situation. So, you know, there's, there's been a range that have been out for uh, most cases, a good number of years. Um, there's carts like, and, and I don't work with these companies, but there's the Delta track that's out there. There's a cork RMR that's out there. Um, in fact, there's a number of Delta track carts um, that are out there. Um, there's the V max that you'll see sometimes reported. And then there's, there's an Ecovix cart that I think is used in Asia. And I've used some of these in, in past life, uh, but again, these these were all very challenging. And we compared all these against this new metabolic cart that I'll mention called the Q Energy, um, that again was developed by this Espen Industry collaboration that, that none of us got to participate in. And we studied um, this new metabolic cart against these old metabolic carts, and 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 there were quite a number of differences. And this was we published this in the um, ICALIC paper that came out recently, and. One of the things we saw right off the bat is the Q Energy can get accurate measurements of steady state in about 10 minutes. And the 10 minutes is just as accurate as 20 or 30 minutes, whereas these other devices take 40 minutes and, and then the calibration time in front of that's enormous. So, you know, this is a two hour process with the old carts, whereas with the Q Energy, it, it takes about five minutes to warm up. It self calibrates. It measures in about 10 minutes. And we're seeing that in COVID-19, we're doing 10 or 15 minute measurements. Um, the other limitations of the previous carts that that uh, many people are probably aware of is they couldn't measure peeps over 10, they couldn't do FIs over 5 or 2s over 60%. The, the Q-Energy, thankfully for the COVID patient, can do up to 70% FIO2, and we've been measuring people routinely at peeps over 16 with good steady state measurements that we've been getting. And so I, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that sort of inspired me to want to be the pro in this situation is I think a lot of effort went in to build this new metabolic cart that is user-friendly, simple, practical, exceedingly accurate. It was validated by mass spec and really is now set up to be the uh, cart that an RD driven metabolic cart team can run and, and work with in a very practical manner and actually make this possible. And so I think that that's the information that, you know, the RDs especially listening, but any of the practitioners listening, you, you know, this is a real opportunity for us to really bring ourselves into the, the same level of care than the ICU that the people that can measure their blood pressures and measure every other thing with a SWAN or any other device and echo, we can do these measurements now too. And, and I've been really impressed. We have three of these devices we've been using Duke for a year now. And even in the COVID rooms, we've been really impressed with it's, how it works. 
So Steve, I think in a perfect world, we'd all love to have a metabolic cart in our institution, but what are some of the barriers that have prevented us from having those metabolic carts available to us? Yeah, I'd point to a couple things. Uh, number one, the training. The training can seem formidable, but it's not, particularly if you approach it as a team. Uh, in 1987, some of you probably weren't even born uh, then, but uh, I went out to California with a pharmacist and a respiratory therapist and myself. And between the three of us learning it together, I mean, they talk about oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide production. I go, what's a V with a dot over it? Now, I'm a gastroenterologist. What is that? And we learned that together. And so don't shy away from the training. The cost is the big thing. And at our institution, we're trying to get a metabolic card again, a new one. We also want to get uh, one of the uh, uh, systems, uh, GPS systems for tube placement. And the administration shies away from a price tag of twenty-five dollars or $30,000. This new one, this new uh, indirect counter Paul's talking about is about half the cost, which is a move in the right direction. But cost is, is a rate limiting step. Some of these carts can either measure you on the mechanical ventilation or room air, but they can't measure on supplemental O2, like nasal cannula. And especially with COVID, with all the, there's so many are measured with a nasal cannula. And I don't know if the Q Energy can do that or not, Paul, uh, but that's a, that's a barrier. Standardization, that the, the process is not standardized. It could be easily standardized if, the, if we got some guideline committee for it, but how often do you test? When do you test when there's a change in the uh, uh, clinical status? And even though the manufacturer validates their instrument, you do you know, have, can you validate the measurements that your machine is making is an issue, particularly if you're going to publish with it. And then the final thing is the fear factor. This is not in everyone's comfort zone on a t an addition support team. And I can't tell you strong enough, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. Go after it. You're life will be richly rewarded by it. Just to touch on Steve's question, um, you know, that, that is still a challenge. The, the, the Q Energy device, like many of the existing devices, doesn't know how to deal with nasal cannula oxygen, right? It's a device that one of the things that makes it so precise and fast acting and, and, and easy to use is it, it's a 30 second sampling device. It's not a breath by breath device like some of them are, uh, which also is what improves the cost and simplicity. So it needs to know what the FiO2 is, which on a ventilator is easy. It can, it can measure the FiO2 because it's controlled by the ventilator. Or if it's room air, it's room air, and it can, it can work with a hood or a mask. But, but that is a limitation when nasal cannula starts to get entrained into a, in a hood situation. The FiO2 is variable. And, you know, I think all of us are, are hoping we can work out ways to, to make that with this new device set more, more accurate. And so, and the last thing I'll also add is I should have mentioned there is a device, GE makes a ventilator for all of you who might be looking for new ventilators. GE makes a ventilator that has a metabolic cart built into it. And what's neat about that is, is it can do 24 hour continuous metabolic cart readings like I used to do um, when I was a resident um, taking care of kids burns and PICU patients and I could get 24 hour continuous energy expenditure. It was really great. There used to be an HP ventilator that device that did that and it's been gone for years. But so that device is out there, um, you know, costs more. And that's one of the limitations why we didn't end up with one at Duke, I think. But, um, but it is out there. And I know some people who've done some, some neat stuff with it. So I'm going to bring us back to reality because, you know, we would all love to have a metabolic cart, but we know there's a lot of places who don't and will not. So what kind of tips can you give our listeners for those uh, who don't have metabolic carts and, and how you would recommend that they determine caloric requirements in the absence of having indirect calorimetry? 
I'm going to touch on it, Steve. I think you're going to say similar things. You know, I, I think, you know, that in that first week, right, the, the, some of the basic Aspen equations and the numbers work pretty well. I think 20 kcals per kilo, maybe 20 to 25 in the non-obese and around 20 in the obese patient, at least in, in our COVID-19 patients, and I, I think this is going to be true elsewhere, is, is a reasonable place to start. And then I think in the intubated patient, we're finding in COVID-19 and the other literature by Frankenfeld and others has shown that the Penn State equation probably performs the best with the limitation that it doesn't have any ability to account for the hypermetabolism we're seeing in, in COVID-19, which, you know, may be unique, but, but I wonder if it isn't happening in some of our other ICU patients. And so it's really variable. We saw days where the patient would be 1800 calories and the next day they'd be 3,400 calories two days later. And so there's incredible variability and risk of under and overfeeding in those ranges later in care after that first week. And so I think that's the real challenge. And, but, but I don't know, Steve, what you think, you know, the Penn State probably performs the best in most of our literature. I would agree on the simplistic weight-based equations and whether you use 20, 22, 25 is not critical. And the beauty of it is its simplicity. Yeah. There are over 200 of these equations and you'll pick up a paper and it'll be by David Frankenfield from Penn State and shock of all shocks, the Penn State worked the best. It's his equation. It's true. <laughs> you, you, they tend to measure, they derive the equations in their ICU, then they come back and test it on a second population to validate it. And, that's, and that shows it's validated very well because it's similar population. Then you take it to another institution to look at accuracy. And that's where it falls down. And the Penn State is a darn good one, but it doesn't beat time after time the other ones. And they all, all of them have an overall accuracy, about 40%, getting within 10% of what you measure by the cart. So I, I think David Frankville does fabulous work. I think the Penn State equation is a good one. I can't say it better than all the other ones. The other thing is there's no substitute. Pick a number and focus on tolerance, focus on the interruption and the feeds, watch a daily physical exam. By the time you get them up to goal and are starting to get them into the recovery phase, you may be able to get accurate weights. You got a lot of things to focus on, uh, not that you've got the right published equation. But I think we hope to that with these, with these new calorimeters that someday soon maybe all hospitals will have the ability to have this. And, you know, and it does more than just measure energy expenditure. I mean, the other population I was thinking of that I found it very useful in is the tough to wean patient on the ventilator, right? When you're weaning, we caught somebody who we were just looking at as a control patient for some of the studies we were doing and her RQ was 1.1. And we had the, we'd been weaning her for like two weeks. We couldn't get her weaned from the vent. And, you know, we, our RD, Leslie Murray and our Duke, ICU made some adjustments, reduced our carbohydrate intake with a change of formula, and we had her extubated two days later. You know, I never would have thought we were overfeeding her on carbohydrates, but we were, and, and it was a mess. And then two other quick things. We've got some data in our initially COVID data set that RQ in the first week looks like it may be statistically predictive of length of ventilator time and mortality even perhaps um, in these patients. And in that Zussman paper, you know, lower energy expenditure averages over time was also predictive of mortality. And so there's some neat prognostic things. And the RQ is an undervalued part of what this data gives us that I think can really help with weaning of the ventilator. If the patient's underfed, you can, you can often see it. Or if they're being overfed and they won't wean from the vent, they're making too much CO2. I, I can think of a patient on the top of my head that had helped recently. So, uh, you know, this, this is the other values of really knowing what's happening.
I would reiterate that, Paul. Uh, we actually did a trial where we were able to show that if the RQ does go up in response to your feeding, uh, you were impacting the respiratory system. And they tended to develop shallow, rapid respirations, indicating you were pushing too hard. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me what you found. That's why these patients fail. You know, the, the, these patients were tachypneic and, and you know, that they, they couldn't quite wean and it mattered what we fed them. Did, did a hypometabolic response predict better mortality or worse mortality? So a low RQ early in the first week, at least in our initial data, and again, this is initial, um, predicted increased mortality and increased time on the vent. So we kind of thought maybe that, you know, these RQs like in the 0.7s and ranges and less than 0.8 often. And, and we kind of thought this is a patient that's really catabolizing, that's really doesn't have any reserve substrate. These are hypotheses, of course, or, or just as in a starved state, maybe as malnourished to baseline. Or, or maybe metabolically doesn't have the flexibility to adapt to use other substrates well. Um, these are all hypotheses, of course, but there is another paper in critical care that was published last year in sepsis patients that showed that if you didn't transition your RQ, if you had an RQ less than 0.8 consistently, that seemed to tend towards worse clinical outcomes as well. So uh, there's another paper that's hinted at this, not quite the same way we're doing it, we're looking at just the first week. They were looking at trends over time, but there seems to be some hint in the RQ around outcomes that may be predictive early on. And Ruben Singer's kind of hinted that to me before in his, his work, but uh, we're seeing it so far. We'll see if we continue to see as we enroll patients. That's the magic of the metabolic cart is that it's a keyhole into the workings of the human body in response to injury. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Well, and I think this whole discussion is focused on calories and we haven't even touched on protein or some of the other things. And that could be a whole other um, topic right there. But before we close, are there any other final comments that either of you guys want to share with our listeners today? I'll go first. I, I've always said this, that the metabolic cart coaches nutritionists. And I, when I go around to different hospital systems, I can tell when somebody's had a metabolic cart at some point in their training because they just they 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 have a fuller understanding. They're more accurate in the design of their regimens. Um, they're better nutritionists, and I think it coaches you to be a better nutritionist for a variety of reasons. Paul. Yeah, and 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 I'll say what I, what I started with too, and I still think it's true. I, I think you know we've always lacked perhaps, and I think sadly RDs have, would have said this to me for years, we, we just don't get the respect or focus that the other organ systems get. And, and, I, and I think some of that has been because we just haven't had the objective numbers. Again, as I go back to the same statement, we wouldn't give vasopressors without measuring the blood pressure. I think from an intensive care person's perspective, from a physician's perspective on rounds, nutrition seems like this nebulous black box that there's no data for, we can't tell them when, you know, there's no objective data for malnutrition, there's not a number or a lab test. And, and if you can't objectively tell me how to target my feeding, it's hard for me to think it's important, like it, we all know that it is. And I think the use of a metabolic cart gives all kinds of objective data that really brings RDs and, and nutrition in general to the table as an equal objective specialty or organ system within in critical care that I think is unique to what the metabolic cart can bring to the table. It's like Steve said, it's like a, it's like a microscope or a, even a telescope um, into, the, into the metabolic life of the patient. And I think now with the development of the new metabolic carts that, that we've all worked so hard on, there is a huge opportunity to finally bring that to fruition and, 
And I, I hope there's a day soon when there's not any hospital or any ICU that doesn't have one, just like every hospital and ICU would have an ultrasound to put lines in, which we didn't do when I started as an attending, but now we wouldn't fathom starting a line without an ultrasound. And, and, and I'm hoping we won't be delivering nutrition without targets that are generated from an objective measurement soon. Jeanette, there's one point that Paul just spiked in, in my mind, and that is getting the readout on a metabolic cart is like a lab test. If you go into a unit and it's the surgeons are doing this or that, and, and they say, well, how much should we feed? You say, well, I think it should be this number. Where'd you get that? Well, 25 guys, I just made it up or I used my own equation. That's different than if you hand them a glossy piece of paper with that data all scripted out, they, that gets their attention. And we've had teams that routinely overfeed that will respond to that data rather than our opinion. And they'll ratchet it down and feed accurately. So I think that's a important tool also of the indirect counter. And I think that's something that all of us who work in clinical practice can really resonate with that need to, to show evidence for what we're doing. So I think that's a great place to wrap it up today. I just want to thank Dr. McClave and Dr. Wishmeyer for participating in our podcast and, and sharing their expertise with all of our listeners. I invite our readers to find out more about this topic and other nutrition support articles in our upcoming issues of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. So thanks, Steve, and thanks, Paul. Enjoyed it, as always. Thanks. Thanks, Jeanette.